Hello, this is Gabe Dunn. And Allison Raskin from the podcast Just Between Us. And guess what? If you've ever wanted to hear an unedited, unfiltered version of the show, you can see our live show at moment.co slash justbetweenus on February 13th at 5 p.m. PST. We are hosting a Valentine's Day spectacular with some really fun guests, some questions from the audience, and a unhinged version of our favorite game show, Hypotheticals. Also, if you want to come meet and greet us, you can do so on February 16th and you can get tickets all at the same place, moment.co slash justbetweenus. And if you can't watch it live, you can get tickets and you'll be able to watch it for seven days after the show airs. So you might be thinking, normally I listen to this show for free, and now you're asking me to pay. And that's true, yes. But (laughs) what's exciting is it's unedited, it'll be raw, it'll be fast, and... um, It'll be video. Exactly. Plus, it's an exclusive show that you won't be able to see anywhere else unless you go to moment.co slash justbetweenus. Happy Valentine's Day. Or not. Forever. (laughs) Dog. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love to dance. Not well, <laughs> but just for fun. <laughs> I'm Melissa Dumont. I'm a writer, producer, director, and I'm in a different time zone than you. Yes, you are. You're home. Yeah. Do you consider your parents' house home or do you consider LA home? Yeah, yeah I yeah, consider right? it home. Yeah. I know. It's like this weird thing. It's weird. I mean, we'll talk about it. And our oh, yeah. topics today. That's true. But it's just weird because uh, honest, LA is the longest place I've ever lived. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think I'm right on the cusp of it being the longest. Mm. Anyway, this you might notice someone's missing. Gabby is still uh, recovering from top surgery. So they entrusted us to, to forge ahead as a different duo. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited. Me too. <laughs> Should I start yelling about stuff? Yeah. What's going to get you riled up? What can I just casually mention and that that will turn you into freaking out over it? It takes a lot. It takes a lot. So I just I I implore you, like I dare you to find something in the next 30 minutes. Next 30 minutes. I am. I've realized that I hate my one professor so much that it's getting unhealthy where just the thought of him makes me furious. And I, the last couple of weeks I've had to work on like actively not getting myself so riled just by thinking about this man's existence. Oh no. (laughs) Can you talk about like, what about him makes you so angry? I just, I, I, he to me is a caricature of what a professor would be. I mean, I don't want to get too specific because when I just say professor, it could be anybody and I don't Mm -hmm. want him to figure out what I'm talking about. Uh But I also feel like there's also been stories that he's told where I don't know what the takeaway is other than racism. Gotcha. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, it's been like that since day one with this professor. So this is like my mortal nemesis. Like I feel such intense feelings of hatred towards this man. Is rape my professor still a thing? I don't know. I tried, so I had to fill out the course survey, right? Mm-hmm. And what I thought to myself was I said, Allison, you can't go too hard because if you just give him 
horrible things across the board and are really mean and spiteful, no one will take it seriously. You have to do a measured survey that show like, okay, this part was fine, but here he was really bad so that it would be taken more seriously and not seem like I have just a vendetta against him. Well, that's smart. Hopefully it'll make things better. But like, is there like, are do your other classmates feel the same way? Yes. Okay. That's well, been really wonderful to find out. Okay. Because sometimes I'm like, I'm too judgmental. I'm too riled up. But then I was like, no, everyone, a lot, not everyone, but a lot of other people feel similarly. Okay, good. Yeah. So that was my strategy. Anyway, this is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ugh, I want to get you riled now. I got to think of something. Oh, I feel like um, people coming to your door and trying to talk to you even when you say no solicitors. Yeah, that's true. But now that I have my ring, I just have that, you know, I have that thing that automatically says we're not interested after like two seconds. Yeah, you do that joke on us every time. It's not. No, it's not even like it's just automatically set. So I'm not pressing anything. Wait, okay, so every time we've gone to your house and we hit uh-huh. the ring doorbell, it then says, we're not interested. It's not and me. I, I have thought the whole time that no. you push a button to do that as no, a No, bit. no, no, <laughs> no. No, it's not me. It's just automatic. That's so funny. Oh, that changes everything. Yeah. You can go <laughs> into your ring settings and have it say anything you want after a, few, a minute. Really? Uh-huh. Wow. I don't like the ring. I haven't. I thought you did. No, I, I mean, it's been convenient in a lot of ways, but I feel very uncomfortable that we have it. Hmm. But John loves to live in a surveillance state. So what can I do? So do I. So <laughs> well, we've got a great episode for everybody today. We're joined by Ashley Ray and we are going to be talking all things TV. Yeah, she's a wonderful um, comedian, but also TV critic. And we get into what's going on with TV, the current landscape, the future of TV, many wonderful, fascinating things. And later, we're going to be talking about where we grew up and how much that influences us as adults. Me being closed off might be part of it. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited to get into that. (laughs) But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question, international question, international question. Rachel, Canada. Barely international. It counts. Barely. <laughs> hey, I, if it, it, I think that them having universal health care really puts us to divide. Yeah, that's true. That changes your life. All right. Hi, Allison and Gabby. TLDR. How do I stand up for myself against my sister and the words of her therapist? I've been a big fan of the show since the early BuzzFeed days. I love you both so much and truly thank you for all the advice and help you have given me through your podcast over the years. I would really appreciate your perspective and advice you might have. Rachel, pronoun she, her, age 29, Canada. First time emailer, long time listener. A year ago, my sister, age 27, pronouns she, her, started attending therapy. At first, things seemed to be going great. I'm a big believer in therapy and was happy for her. She seemed to be in a good place. However, recently, I have noticed a change. She started bringing up her therapist in disagreements to justify her behavior, legitimize her victimhood, 
and exempt herself from self-reflection. If she remembers the events of a past argument differently, she must be correct because she was a victim of gaslighting in a previous relationship and therefore knows how to be objective. If she is being aggressive, she tells you that her therapist says she is often taken advantage of and has to defend herself. Recently, she told me that she had shared screenshots of an argument we had over text years ago with her therapist. Her therapist advised her that I am a bully and that she needs to assert herself around me. As a result, if we get into an argument, she seems to feel the need to humiliate me publicly and badger me until I shut down. The last time we saw each other in person, we had a disagreement regarding a family photograph. My sister wanted me to take a photo of my parents, her, and her partner. To cut a long story short, I didn't want to, but did not feel safe expressing my feelings in front of everyone, so instead tried to make an excuse to leave the situation for a moment. In front of crowds of people, my sister then told me I was ruining the whole day. She started asking strangers to take the photo by saying, hi, can you take this photo without her in it? Pointing at me. I don't know what's wrong with my sister. For whatever reason, she refuses to take this photo. Sorry about this family drama. The situation was incredibly awkward and painful. After that, she told me that she wished I had never joined them at this family gathering that I am a horrible sister, and that she wished I had stayed in my home city. At the time, I didn't have it in me to respond and just took it in. I have since apologized to her and explained my emotional headspace. Although she previously expressed understanding, she continues to bring it up along with anything else to justify her actions and prove I am aggressive and emotionally unstable. I don't expect her to apologize, but hearing her say she fully supports her words profoundly hurts me. I do believe I was wrong and could have handled everything much better, but I don't think it's okay for her to use this moment of vulnerability against me. The next time I see my sister in person will be Christmas. I am scared of doing something that will later be used against me. I don't want to cause a fight, but I also don't want to be emotionally trampled on if we have a disagreement. So how do I stand up for myself without inciting an argument or historical account of my failures and flaws in previous disagreements? Thank you for reading this very long message. Sincerely, Rachel. Oof. Oh, this one's hard because it's also hard because we don't know. Sometimes it's like, do we take what the reader is saying mm-hmm. at face value? Because like, who who knows what dynamics are at play here? Right. And you're, the writer's always going to paint themselves in the best light, but we don't know what else is, you know, going on. But I don't know. I'm interested to hear your perspective from someone who studies people (laughs) (laughs) so here's the thing is that therapists who are doing individual therapy only get told things from that client's Mm -hmm. perspective and so a really good therapist can sometimes see through that right like a really good therapist might notice hey you're the victim in every story hey you're having falling outs with people all the time in which you constantly tell me that they're the problem, but it seems kind of unusual that you haven't been able to maintain a friendship, you know? And so they can maybe start to uncover things that are different than the way that the client presents it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas other therapists might believe everything that their client tells them at face value. And so if they think, you know, if, if the client says, my sister's a bully, then they're like, well, their sister's a bully. Do you know what I mean? There's right. no 
challenge back um, or investigation of if this person's perception might be skewed. That is just one of the aspects of therapy. Like I actually, (laughs) when I was interviewing a therapist for my book, they were saying that in couples therapy, there's nowhere to hide because you're, you could say something and then you have another person there to say that didn't happen or that's not Mm. how I experienced it, but that's different than individual therapy. So I would remember that. Like I would remember that their therapist is just getting their version of events and some clients can successfully manipulate their therapists into believing things that aren't accurate in the way that people can manipulate anyone into believing things that aren't accurate. So it's a really tricky line to walk. Is it also like, could it also be like the sister is taking things that the therapist is saying and just taking what they want to hear and then manipulating the situation when the sister is sharing it with with Rachel as a way to be defensive? Yeah, I mean, right, like they could be like, you know, the therapist could say something like, sometimes it's important to stand up for ourselves. And then they take it as like, I need to always stand up for myself. (laughs) Or like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like it's it's hard because some people hear what they want to hear, ignore what they don't want to ignore, have a hard time seeing the nuance in things. And also just remember they're picking and choosing, right? They're picking which conversation to show their therapist on text message. They're not just letting the text, you know, not just letting the therapist go through their phone willy nilly. And it could be like, that was like the worst thing you said because your sister said something awful and your sister's own is editing it to make herself look better in the therapist's eyes. Yeah. So it's really tricky. I mean, one option that I have here is to suggest family therapy with your sister. Because like I said, there's nowhere to hide. Like it it won't just feel like you're being attacked um, with your sister having her therapist as sort of her backup, having going to family therapy with another therapist um, could be a way to sort of like have it have a clean slate, even playing field, both bring up the issues that come up around your dynamic. You know, she can share what she's learned in her therapy. You can share your perspective and then you sort of have this new landscape to work on things in your dynamic. Yeah, I agree with that. That's really good. And I mean, also sometimes like I'm hesitant to suggest that you ask to be in her session with her therapist because I don't trust this therapist. I don't necessarily think this would be helpful. So I think, yeah, like starting with a a different therapist could be good. 100% because I mean, the, the end of the day, therapists are people. And they're already going to have this perception of who you are because of how your sister has built you up. And then they already know your sister in a different way than they know you. So, yeah, starting with a new person, 100%. And in terms of like, if that's not, you know, an option for you, because I do see this sometimes. I do see therapy words weaponized in a way that is actually like not helpful and productive. And so I don't know if that's like what your sister is doing or if she's just in the middle of growth and processing and, you know, in a year she'll be kind of settled a bit from the all the things that going to therapy sort of turn up in you. Or if this will be like a longstanding issue where she is weaponizing this quote unquote expert against you. But I think that having a conversation with her where you say, I'm so glad that you are in therapy. It's great because it means that change is possible. 
but I would also like you to recognize that I, uh, I would like for you to also give me the grace to change. And when you constantly bring up things that have happened in the past, it's really difficult for me. And it would be because I've worked on myself because I think those things are taken out of context. I feel like I would like to start a relationship with you based on who we are now and from now moving forward. But that's difficult when you keep bringing up things from our past. And so I'm, I'm just curious if you would be willing to sort of get to know the current me and see my current form and, and work on this current dynamic instead of diving into older stuff that, that I think isn't really helping us in any way. And I know that we're answering this one. You'll hear this after Christmas time. So y'all have already met in person, but I feel like, you know, this will prepare you for the next event because they're your sister and they're not going anywhere. And the thing that sucks about family (laughs) is that... um, (laughs) That they're your sister and they're not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So I also think that sometimes there is a level of acceptance that this is a person that is difficult to be in relation with, that they have some traits and some tendencies that are difficult for you. But unfortunately, we can't fix other people. And so it really comes down to how can you stay safe in relation with her? How can you self-soothe? How can you not rile yourself up? How can you get to a place where you're, you're not in reaction to her? Um, but more just let her do her thing and don't let it rile you up so much. So that's something that can be helped with through individual therapy. That's something that can be helped with just by doing things to kind of help your emotional regulation, like exercise, mindfulness, meditation, just things. So like, it's almost like that thing of like keeping your own street clean or your own side of the street clean, because she is a variable that you cannot control. So I think that the less reactive you feel around her, the better you will just feel in general, Um, which is hard because our family members tend to bring up stuff in us more than anyone else. But focusing on that might be more effective than like if she is unreceptive to your attempts to build a healthier dynamic with her. You're good at this. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Well, we hope that that helps. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about television with Ashley Ray. just between us it's time for the juiciest most scandalous most controversial segment known to all of podcasting tough questions ashley ray is the most famous bisexual solo polyamorous black queer comedian actor and writer currently based in los angeles welcome to the show ashley hey i'm really happy to be here and who gave you that uh, the most famous title? Is I that sounds like uh, something yeah. a, a loving parent would bestow. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a thorough vetting. There was a, a whole like voting. They sent out, yeah. you know, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. There were there were people knocking on doors all across LA to to make sure that was accurate. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you on because uh, one of the components of your multifaceted career is that you do a lot of TV criticism. You review shows, you talk about shows, and as avid TV watchers, TV writers, we are so excited to kind of dive into that side of things. 
Yeah, I love television. It's something that I've always just had a passion for. I mean, you know, growing up, I loved watching TV. I would watch old shows, new shows. Uh, and in college, that's when I really realized, oh, I can write about this. It's something interesting. And I did my senior thesis on the history of Black TV uh, and eventually started freelancing for the AV Club and working there. So what did your thesis uncover? I imagine quite a, quite a few takeaways. <laughs> yeah, uh, at the time, this was like, after sort of the big boom of Black television that we saw sort of like after Insecure, Blackish and all of that, where it seemed like, oh, we're coming back, but we weren't getting as much impact or we weren't covering as much ground as people kind of thought. It was like, oh, in the 90s, we had Black shows, then they disappeared. And now we have like three, <laughs> you know, what? Oh, OK, yeah. is this where where's the progress, really? So that looked at kind of this idea that people sort of inherently have that things are getting more progressive. But when you compare how many, you know, black TV shows there were in the 70s, which is really like the golden era of black TV versus now, you see that there's so much less diversity uh, that it's even harder for for black writers and people of color to break into the industry. Uh, so it was really examining that. And then looking at the shows that were successful and why, like why people were so into Scandal <laughs> uh, and what Scandal had to say about basically being, you know, um, it, it was still a time when Scandal was like seen as representation. Like we all were, like that was like Olivia Pope <laughs> was like black female excellence. Like we were expected to wear beautiful coats and always have our hair done and you could also beat a man in a wheelchair to death. Uh, that is yeah. a real Scandal plotline. Mm -hmm. so. I watched I watched the hell out of Scandal. So. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was like, it's just kind of silly to see people being like, oh, Olivia Pope, is she represents black women. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't think most of us are sleeping with Republican presidents and no. eating popcorn and wine for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that show is like nobody's the hero on this on that show. Yeah. So it's not who we're trying to emulate. Yeah, we don't need it to be representation or like, you know, this beautiful depiction of Black womanhood. It can just be a juicy drama mm -hmm. with a bunch of bad people who beat a man in a wheelchair to death. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what it was. Honestly, I feel like she was underwritten compared to other characters on that show. Yeah. Like, she oh, was yeah. pretty one note. Yeah, it was always just like, Olivia's got it. And like, I, I think a little when she got kidnapped and that mm -hmm. they, mm. they kind of like broke her a little bit and got into her inner head. But yeah, I'm curious if your uh, your thesis, did it touch on because you, you spoke about like the golden age in the 70s and then also in the 90s, a lot of black TV had a lot of resurgence. Did you touch on how a lot of networks built themselves on black shows and then when they became financially stable they got rid of them oh yes yeah oh that was a big part of it and you know uh, uh, yeah it's it's basically what you said it was cheaper for these networks to make black shows because you didn't have to pay as much mm -hmm. you didn't have to pay the writers as much you didn't have to pay the actors as much and the shows would do really well especially you know this is this is the upn model like the wb mm -hmm. model uh they had shows that seemed that that were really successful you know it's not like these shows were cheap to make didn't look good didn't really have an audience and then you know they pivoted it was like oh we've got our audience we've built a brand for ourselves I, I think like growing up in the 90s early 2000s you used to remember like the WB commercials were uh -huh. so black 
Yes. <laughs> they were so black. It was just like rappers and everybody being like, yeah, WB, the B stands for black. <laughs> and then a few years later, they're just like, okay, that we did it. We got our audience. We built ourselves. We have advertisers now. Now we can like use this to pivot to a white audience and put up like teen dramas. And yeah. And then it's interesting too, eventually that became the CW and then now the CW, it, it was never financial after that. And now it's essentially going away now too. Yeah, yeah. CW got like bought by Nexstar or something. Mm-hmm. And now they're they're pivoting to become, they, they did some study that was like the average CW watcher is something like 50 years old. Uh, really? Which, <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, that that I think is one example of how TV viewership is so skewed still. Because I think if you did look at who watches the CW overall in a Nielsen rating, because their programming basically turns into what the 40 hundred fortune club, that religious mm-hmm. show at like 10 PM, they yeah. don't have nighttime programming. <laughs> so at oh, 10 PM, wow. it's just going to be like that religious Pat. Do I don't, I don't even yeah. fortune 500 club or something. Uh, the, not, the, like my grandmother will watch. Yeah. That mess. yeah it's like <laughs> just nursing home TV. Uh-huh. So if you look at it overall and you don't take that out because it's not actually CW programming, mm-hmm. it's like, Oh yeah, our average viewer is 50. But if you look at just actual CW programming and streaming, streaming platforms, it's like, no, your audience watches Riverdale at most. They're probably like a 33 year old woman. <laughs> right. And I wonder, like, what has the changing landscape of TV meant for, you know, more diverse writers? Because I think it's so interesting that, like, right now we talk a a big game, but the reality is it's worse than before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in 2020, there was, like, this big reckoning in Hollywood and everyone was like, we're going to listen to Black people and hire them and, you know, give them the resources to do the same stuff that, that, you know, to get the same chances. And that happened in 2020 and then nothing else really Mm -hmm. came of it. (laughs) It was just sort of like all these promises. And then I think the industry kind of did give us some projects, but then would often turn around, not properly support or market those projects. And then they'd be like, oh, see, it didn't make money. So Mm -hmm. people don't actually want that. And it's like, well, who did you market this to? Who knew that this was coming out? Mm-hmm. You know, like movies, Honk for Jesus, just so many TV shows. It's like, where to even begin? You know, Gordita Chronicles, all that stuff. It's even harder to like get those shows made, get them properly marketed, get them on a, a network that, you know, cares about letting a show grow and find itself and isn't just a streamer like Netflix or HBO that's like, hey, that didn't work. So it's we're just erasing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that... That's new. It's scary. And there's this kind of crunch on mid-level writers, which is where a lot of uh, writers of color are. You know, it's like we're either first level, early level, low level. I don't want to say low level, <laughs> but, you know, like beginner writers Pre, or yeah. mid. Yeah, yeah. Pre or mid-level. Or, yeah. Yeah. And usually people want senior writers or they want young writers because you can get more of them. It's cheaper. You can get two writers for the price of one mid-level writer. So you see a lot of uh, people of color come in, they manage to get their foot in the door, and then they become mid-level writers and it's harder to find that next gig. And it's harder when you don't have money because, you know, this is TV, you get paid between, you don't get paid between gigs. So it's easier to pivot to another industry or go do something else than to tough it out in TV. So you see a kind of drop off where, you know, those leadership positions, those senior writer, showrunner positions are still mostly going to, to white people because they're the ones who can stick it out. 
So it's it's just scary. It's like, you know, all of this stuff with streaming and erasing stuff and residuals and uh, who knows. It's Yeah, I can't yeah. tell you how many of those in 2020 when they were having all these boosts on Twitter and stuff and how many of those like coffee, virtual coffees I went on and I could tell that they were, it was just for show. Oh, like, yeah. They weren't really trying to help with anything. Yeah, it was so much just, oh, yeah, send me this packet. I'll send mm-hmm. it to my reps and I'll totally vote. And it's just like, you aren't reading right. this. You aren't, you know, yeah. I saw a discourse on Twitter about like the, the, the person who tweeted, and I apologize, I don't remember their name, but they were saying that like the goal isn't to like force a black character into a white show like that like when like something like succession all of a sudden like has a black character that's not what is like what the goal is the goal is to like have shows where like black characters would like naturally be your diverse characters would naturally be and I was just wondering kind of your thoughts on that yeah I, I think that's a point I've I've written about a lot in a lot of in a lot of ways yeah, I think it's not about this sort of forced diversity. Nobody wants that, you know? I think I I was saying this about White Lotus where people were like, when is there going to be, when are Black people going to be in White Lotus and go into all these fancy resorts? And I'm just like, this isn't our mess. Like, this mm-hmm. is, the show is about white mess and the mess that comes from white privilege and white arrogance and ignorance. This isn't our journey. <laughs> like, right. I don't need black people and girls. We're not doing that with Lena. That's not our, that's not our, you know, culture, whatever. It's not our story. But, you know, I think you see that often where they just try to like slot in a diverse group, but they force on these sort of white stories on these characters or just make, you know, I think a recent example is uh, the Queerest Folk reboot they did on Peacock where, you know, it, it wasn't the characters from the original Queerest Folk, which was very, you know, revolutionary for its time, very gay, but it was very white. There was no diversity. It was just a white, you know, cast. Uh, And so this reboot was like, well, what if we move it from Philadelphia, send it to New Orleans and have it be tons of people of color and non-binary people and trans people? And it's like, oh, that's great. But then they just took these stories from this like white show and just tried to force it on you know, they, they used a lot of the same arcs and it's like, well, that's not how that would go for people of color. Like, that's not, you know, you can't just force them into the same story as these other people. It's it's something different if it's that it, you, know, you have to recognize that. And, I, and obviously, it's always good to have diversity. We're always happy to see change and to see that. But at the same time, it's like, how beneficial is it if it's, you know, at the end of the day, like setting us back in some ways or it's not you know, as honest or realistic as some other piece might have been. Yeah, I was thinking you mentioned girls. And I remember when that was on air and they got a lot of flack. And then one episode they had Donald Glover come in to be Hannah's boyfriend for an episode. And it just turned into him preaching about diversity. And I was like, what is the point of this? Yeah, like him. I don't watch girls for this. Yeah. And he plays a black Republican, which on top of it all was supposed to be like, Oh, how are you? How can you say like what kind of black people relate to? And it's just like we don't need this. Right. This is not teaching. I don't need this from Lena Dunham or Donald Glover. Like, no, just you know, get get back into Hannah and her stuff. Mm-hmm. Let her go yell at Adam. I don't need yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is wild to watch even shows from ten years ago with like the level of jokes that they make, like things that 
you know, like there's just such rampant homophobia in like sitcoms and racism and, you know, anti anyism like, you know, and so I'm curious, like, do you think that there, like the bar has gotten higher for like what is appropriate on TV, but like, is there still a lot to go? Like, are you still seeing things where you're like, how did that pass through the room and the network and all that stuff? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I I think recently people got mad at Mindy Kaling because she said the office couldn't be made today. People are too sensitive. And I think that's silly. I think today there's still stuff being made that's like, oh, how how was that? Okay, (laughs) you know, there's just so much TV being made that people don't notice it as much now, (laughs) you know, but like. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia debuted the same year as The Office. It's still airing and it, mm-hmm. it's not like it's less offensive. They've just updated the ways they're offensive to match today, right. <laughs> you know? So, uh, and I think you look at shows like Secession and yeah, that's that's not like a, I don't know, a, a positive, clean show, I would right. say. And I think you know, that's we, part we, of the enjoyment of it. Yeah, part of it is that, you know, there is an offensive thing you watch because, you know, they're going to say offensive things and they're offensive people. So I think it's just what we find offensive and what now kind of makes us roll our eyes is different. Like, you know, now the type of gay jokes you would see in 90s sitcoms, it's just like, okay, that's not funny. Like, you're making a joke that, what, he dresses nice because he's gay? Like, you know, that's just not even a trope anymore. Like, straight guys dress nice, who cares? So I think those cultural norms have changed. But, you know, I mean, hey, you watch It's Always Sunny, they still do make jokes about, you know, Mac being gay. That's still a huge thing. There's still different ways that people just make fun of gay people now. So, and, you know, also now that there are, there is more diversity in some of this being made, it is a lot of times those communities being able to like laugh and make fun of themselves. Uh, Like Reboot, I thought had a great plot line of like a gay character who was able to like, you know, make those jokes about himself in the gay community. I was just thinking about Reboot for that scene playing basketball against all those Jewish kids. Yeah. (laughs) And like there were so many Jew jokes in that scene. But it was so clear to me that it was written by a Jew, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that because the kids kept like making references to old TV shows and he's just like, yes. why do you know this reference? Yes. <laughs> why do you know that show? That was just so funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Reboot is so good and is one of that, those shows that I think really in a clever way like talks about that dividing line of older generations and what mm-hmm. they think, you know, us young kids are like and how we're so proper and these us younger kids being like, no, we're just we're just offensive in different ways. Like we're not afraid to cross like these boundaries or address these difficult topics. It's just, we we aren't doing it in a way that's like, but men are like this and women are like this. (laughs) We know gender isn't real. So yeah. Yeah. I love that scene in Reboot when they were in the writer's room and they were arguing about like making offensive jokes and then they start making offensive jokes at each other too. <laughs> it's such a fun show. Yeah. yeah. And so I think like you touched on something earlier of like, there are so many shows and why do you think some shows catch fire and some shows just like disappear into the ether? Oh, it's so hard. I, part of it is all of the streaming platforms. Marketing money doesn't work the way it used to because it's not tied to advertisers as much anymore. It's tied to subscriptions. You know, just binge versus weekly model is another thing. 
where some shows I think are able to blow up because they, you know, delay the gratification like The White Lotus. That's going to that that gets people interested. It's a slow build. But at the same time, Hulu hasn't been able to capture that magic. (laughs) You know, they're Mm -hmm. trying so hard with like weekly rollouts with shows like The Patient and Welcome to Chippendales, but they just don't really catch on. And then there's shows that they just release release as a binge like Rami do somehow catch on. So Mm -hmm. it's so random these days. And so much of it is driven by conversation. And if you can get people talking, like people can watch something that is perfectly fine, pretty good. But if it doesn't make them want to tweet about it, tell people about it, it's not going to catch on. There's so many shows this year that I was like, oh, yeah, I did watch that. And it was pretty good. But I guess it just like wasn't worth mentioning to people. So (laughs) I just kind of moved on and forgot it came out this year. Like the Sex Pistols TV show that Hulu did. I didn't even know about it. I think I saw an ad for it, but I was like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) I think it's called The Pistols. I don't even remember the name of it, but I watched every episode. I was there every (laughs) week like, oh, can't wait for the new app. Like binge the first three. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could watch this episode to episode. Pam and Tommy, they're just shows that kind of happened and came and went because there Mm -hmm. wasn't a big cultural conversation that they inspired. Mm Yeah. Like Angeline was kind of like one for me too. Yes, Angeline, which, yeah, I loved that one and I thought it was so good. Uh But yeah, it's like there was no convo. No one was talking about it. Yeah, nobody talked about it. I've never even heard of it. Uh, It's good. So yeah, it's so good. It has my girl, Emmy Rossum from Shameless. She's playing Angeline, the like LA heroine that we all Mm -hmm. know who drives around in her pink car and back in the day used to put up billboards of herself. So she could get famous, even though she yeah. wasn't really famous for anything. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Like the original influencer. Yeah, she's the original influencer. <laughs> she was the first to do it. And, you know, people wanted to find out her background. Who was she? And it's a great story. And it's a really a wonderful look at like womanhood and media and, you know, restarting your life after trauma. But nobody talked about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just yeah. kind of like, oh, the outfits were good. Anyway, I don't pay for Peacock, so I didn't see it. <laughs> so. yep. I also feel like there is such a divide between like what the majority of the country is watching and then what Twitter is talking about. Oh, yeah. 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 So like my family yes. is obsessed with Yellowstone and it's probably the biggest TV show right now. And I don't know a single person in Los Angeles who watches, who watches it. it. I have never watched it. I talked to my relative. Oh, my gosh. Yellowstone, Yellowstone, Yellowstone. Right? No idea. I didn't even really know what it was. I was like, is it an old cowboy show? And I guess it is set in modern times. It's modern cowboys. I did not know that until right now. I thought it was was old, old, but I learned it was now. (laughs) I mean, I'm I am pretty sure. No, it is. Yeah. Because I was shocked, too, Melissa. Yeah, because I was like, it's an old timey show. And people were like, no, it's about like today and this huge ranch and I was just like yeah that's nope no idea and if you look at you know Nielsen ratings or just what people are actually watching on cable because still a large part of this country has cable it shows like young Sheldon and Grey's Anatomy and The Voice and yeah like it's stuff that I I mean I still watch Grey's Anatomy I'll admit I do too (laughs) (laughs) great Grey's is still good you know that still got me But it's all these shows that on Twitter, I I think a few months ago, actually, someone posted like the top 50 most popular shows in America. And all these Twitter people were just like, 
what is this? I've never watched any of these shows. NCIS Miami? Who's watching that? And it's like the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like everyone else. I just Googled Yellowstone and there's three spinoffs for this show as well. Yes. It's major. They're like basing the whole network around this phenomenon. Yeah. Wow. Like, yeah. Like Paramount, it's Paramount Plus's only hit, I want to say. It's so wild. And so it's like like Paramount Network, isn't it? I don't even know. I don't even know what it is. It's like the Paramount Network, but it's on Peacock, but it's not on the Paramount Plus app, even though it's on the Paramount Network. Yeah. Which is another thing that confused me because I was just like, I don't even know where you watch that. Yeah, the prequels are on Paramount Plus. (laughs) But yeah, that's very wild. Yeah, Yeah. so there's just so much TV and... I think we've been in, you know, our own sort of vacuums for so long now that you can just go forever without really realizing or knowing like, oh, yeah, the other there's this whole population out there that still watches Survivor and Big Brother and and loves that stuff. They love network TV. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Just between us. Back. Can you explain a bit about what is going on with HBO Max and why things are getting removed from platforms oh, and like yeah. what is the benefit of that for them? Yeah, because <laughs> it's only for them. Right. <laughs> so, you know, Discovery Plus, this gigantic app that started a few years ago that was like TLC, uh, a lot of the home cooking, the Food Network, a lot of channels, True TV, Investigation Discovery, all put together into the Discovery Plus app. Uh, they realized it was not really making money. People did not want to pay four ninety nine a month to watch, you know, the bottom barrel cable channels. Um, sadly, <laughs> which is sorry, I love TLC, I love the ninety eight, but that's kind of what they were. That's what they are. They're the channels you watch in hotels, and so they were like, "Hey, we got to make this profitable." Someone at Discovery was like, "How about we buy HBO Max? Let's buy HBO. Let's buy it." Join it up just with Warner Brothers Discovery and we'll put it all together and then we'll make money because people want HBO. So they'll just have to buy HBO and they'll get us with it. So that was the big plan. They joined all the companies. Uh, obviously, it was not cheap to buy to buy HBO. It costs a lot of money. Discovery had to take out all these loans. They took on a ton of debt, <laughs> uh, like billions of debt buying HBO. And now they're in a huge hole. Mm. And they need to recoup a ton of money. So when this happened, they had tons of layoffs. A lot of people got fired. A lot of shows were cut almost immediately that like had been announced, like a lot of things in pre-development. And then people kind of thought, oh, it's going to stop there. They're just going to, but anything that's already running, I mean, if it's a success, why would they get rid of it? And someone at WB started crunching numbers and they were like, hey, you know what? Actually, we waste money per user hosting some of these shows on our app because of the cost it takes to maintain uh, like the, you know, the, I don't know, the computer part of it, the files and all that, like the hosting size uh, versus how many people are actually watching a show. On top of that, you have to pay residuals to the cast, to the crew when people do watch it. And for some of the shows, they figured out a little formula to be like, hey, what we pay to the cast and residuals and stuff is not worth how many, you know, like the 10 people who are watching Mrs. Fletcher on HBO. (laughs) Like -hmm. we're spending more than we're getting. Uh, And then they also, because if they take it off, they get to count it as a loss. 
uh, that helps on the back end with their with some tax loop where it's like anything that they count as a loss, they don't have to like pay taxes on or something. So they make a bunch of money. So basically, they're now just going through their catalog and going, what are we not making a profit off of? <laughs> what are we paying too much in residuals to actors and, you know, writers and showrunners that we don't want to pay? And they're removing these shows. And now it's getting even scarier because they're starting to remove shows that have been like given second seasons uh-huh. who that have been renewed and are already shooting. So they announced Minx uh, is, is getting canceled from HBO. And not only that, they're removing all the episodes from this, from the platform. So they don't have to pay any residuals. <laughs> uh, and also that does make it easier to shop it somewhere else because, you know, if Netflix decides they want Minx, they don't want the first season to be on HBO. So they would have to take it all anyway. But it's just this scary thing where people in TV are like, hey, what what do you mean my show can be almost done, like in post and you are like, never mind. We wasted all this money shooting it for months. Throw it in the trash. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is the hope that someone else will buy these shows and put them somewhere or they're just like happy to just like never have anyone see them again? That's the hope. Uh, and for some of them, it's a little easier. So with Minx, there's another production company. So uh, HBO didn't produce it. They were just the distributor. So the production company can go to another platform and say, hey, you want to distribute this? Kind of like what Netflix did with Tuca and Birdie when they gave it to Adult Swim. Uh, So that's the hope for some of the shows. But there are other ones like Love Life, which was actually HBO's first original series that they produced, that they made. And they're taking it off the platform and canceling it after a really successful season two and that can't go anywhere. It's it's an HBO thing unless HBO's like, oh, let's sell, you know, sell our thing to someone else and give mm-hmm. them all the rights to it. But why do that? You know, it doesn't really make sense for some of it. So it's just scary. And it's also scary because the people making these shows don't know anything. They aren't notified, you know, of, hey, your show is going to be taken off or this is going to happen. It just happens. <laughs> and then one yeah. day you see like a showrunner going, hey, so uh, I noticed my show isn't on there anymore and I don't know how to access it anymore. This is really wild, but like the thing is, is that it's not really new though. Like it's happened yeah. before, but it we just didn't have, have streaming services where things lived in perpetuity. Like yes. there are things like CBS had shows and they would get rid of them, but like put them on WB or then like yeah. in the past they've been, they've purposely made movies that would never see the light of day like the there was in like the 90s there was a fantastic four movie that they made to take a loss but the actors and the crew did not know that they thought they were act making an actual movie yeah so yeah it's like it's nothing new mm-hmm. especially sort of the the tricky ways you would see networks and stuff get around syndication rules. So like when a show hits 100 episodes uh-huh. uh, on cable, it would go into syndication and a network could like air it on other channels, make money. The cast gets to make more money from residuals. And they would do these clever things to be like, let's uh, stop that show. Like we'll cancel it at 89 episodes just so the shows wouldn't like hit that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's nothing new that people want to like find a way to screw over creators and writers. Uh, it's just now I think people are realizing that it, it's so much more immediate now that it's mm-hmm. like no one even has a chance to kind of go, hey, wait a second. Or, oh, my show's suddenly been moved to a new night or the is now on the WB and they just want to like decrease viewership so they can eventually cancel it. 
-hmm. It's just like, oh, no, they're canceling Gordita Chronicles, erasing it all from the platform. And that's it. It's it's just, yeah, today. It's just gone. And the only way you can watch it is illegally. I mean, it's also been interesting to see with the growth of all of these different streamers. At a certain point, it's like, well, I can't have 15 streamers that I'm paying $5 a month for (laughs) and then thinking that I'm like doing better than if I just had cable, you know, like, yeah. Do you think that at a certain point they'll start to merge together and it will go back closer to the way it used to be with a larger, you know, a larger (laughs) monthly, but for more multiple streamers? Like, what do you kind of see as the future? Honestly, yeah, I think and we already kind of see it. All of these uh, streaming platforms are starting to kind of fold in on themselves with Discovery Plus getting HBO. And now it's going to just be Max and you can watch all of those. Uh, You have AMC Showtime and what is it? AMC Showtime and Paramount have all now. yeah. Yeah. Paramount are now like basically all the same app and you can watch everything there. Then you have like Hulu with the FX Disney thing. And also they have cable agreements. So if you have Hulu and like certain cable things, you get other free packages like ESPN. So that's all it's turning into. <laughs> it's just eventually all of these corporations are going to be connected in some way where it's like, oh yeah, you know, if you just get a Comcast package, you get Hulu, Paramount, all of these pla- all of these apps. And you're back to just paying for a cable package. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you think about Netflix now that they'll have ads eventually in shows. I don't know. I don't think that that's going to work out well for them. I mean, we're just too trained as Netflix users to not have commercials, except, you know, like Netflix commercials. It's, I I just don't think they're going to like create a user experience where users are like, I'm okay with this. Like I'm okay with a commercial (laughs) while I'm binging old episodes of Survivor, you know, and I, Hulu has had that problem because if you have Hulu with live TV, you get commercials, even for old TV shows. I'm trying to watch old episodes of Below Deck. It's going to show me commercials. But if I watch those same episodes like on Netflix, I don't get commercials. Mm-hmm. So Netflix losing that edge, I don't think is, is, gonna, is a good idea. But I mean, they are just in a free fall. They need to be profitable. It's not like they have a choice. So it, it's, it, I, yeah, I just don't think it's an answer for what they need. <laughs> I feel like they just need to keep dedicating money to like the shows they have that are successful and that actually build an audience they need to focus on building those audiences and then you know sell merch sell dvd (laughs) box sets people still want those you know like sell unseen footage on a dvd like yeah you still have that type of content but people don't realize that's actually what people like about tv shows still people still buy dvds yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like DVD box sets, not just, you know, like a one, like a movie, you know, but if it's something like, I, I mean, I just got like my last one was like a big Ingmar Bergman box set that comes with like a book full of essays on his movies and stuff. Uh, but if it's something like a seasonal box set or, you know, a look back at this with special cast footage. Yeah, people still want to buy that stuff. They still like the extras. It's like I bought Beyonce's mm-hmm. CD. I don't even own a CD player just because I wanted the book that came with it. And so, it's also you don't know if it's going to still be on that streamer next yeah, week. So exactly. If you can have it, then that's a, a good way to keep people engaged. Yeah. HBO should just have like flash sales. Well, they're like, yeah. buy it while you can. We're going to take away everything I w- you love. <laughs> I would buy so many shows. I think it was the uh, the showrunner of Station Eleven 
uh, yesterday was talking about how a pa- he it's like someone hit him up and was like, did you know that they made a Station Eleven DVD? And it was a limited series on HBO. Absolutely incredible. Uh, Should have got more nominations this year. But uh, people were like, hey, you know, there's a DVD you can buy on Amazon. And the showrunner and all the creators were like, what? Like, nobody told us this. Nobody told us they made a DVD of our show. And they were just like, oh, yeah, they're being made per order. But, you know, yeah, this is it. It had unseen, like, footage, director commentary. And they were like, no, we didn't want this footage out there for a reason. (laughs) And they had to work with them to be like, we want this. We want this. Take this out. But they were like, you know, if you had just come to us and said, hey, we want to make a DVD, we would have done something even bigger and better than this. And we would have Mm -hmm. been happy to do it. And I would have bought that. I love the book. I love the show. I would buy like an in-depth DVD of Station Eleven. But they aren't even being given the chance to have that or to create that experience. And it's like, what what are they doing? <laughs> what are these networks doing? They don't know. That's the thing is they don't know. They don't know. <laughs> and it's so hard because these people who are in these positions of power, these, ex- you know, these executives at these different companies, they know as much as we do, like what what will hit or not hit. But then yeah. like their jobs are on the line about it. And so there's like this sense of like, well, I can't screw up, which I think makes it hard for them to take risks on like things that would be more interesting or that aren't based on existing properties. Yeah, I, I think definitely they don't want to take risks anymore. Uh, they're folk They're You know, you have to kind of prove yourself as a name. You look at like Quinta Brunson and the success of Abbott Elementary. And a lot of people like to say like, oh, she's an overnight hit. She was funny online. And then she magically got this TV show that was a hit. And it's like, no. <laughs> She had a show at CBS that was in development with Larry Wilmore that like got canceled before they even finished the pilot. Uh, she had shows on Facebook Watch, on YouTube Red, on Verizon Go TV, like a million platforms you don't even remember anymore. It's like it was all of those steps of challenging and showing people and proving like, hey, I have a vision. I know how to do this that led to ABC and you know, like I said, a lot of those platforms don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. And so there's fewer opportunities uh, for, you know, the next Quinta to work with a BuzzFeed video when BuzzFeed is like firing half their video team. It's harder when, you know, there's no Quibi, there's no CISO, all that stuff failed. And now your biggest way to get in was like an HBO Max show, maybe as a writer, you know, you become a mid-level writer, you become a showrunner, get an overall deal. No, that's not, unless you're mm-hmm. Issa Rae, it's very difficult to make that happen now. And so it's kind of just like people are just like, you know, TikTok, YouTube, make your own stuff, do your own thing. It's that expectation, which isn't really the same. It's not, yeah. you know, making a TikTok or YouTube series just isn't really the same as wanting to go that path of creating a TV show. Yeah, I think we know that all too well. Yeah. <laughs> I, had a, I had a couple of shows on like Go on Verizon's Go90 platform and... Uh, AT&T had one too and they it was like one day it was just like we don't exist anymore like I was literally prepping for a show and then it just went away the next day like yeah like Nicole Byer had it was a show that actually started on MTV that was very funny Mm -hmm. Uh, thoroughly absolutely Nicole or absolutely something Mm -hmm. Nicole it was so funny started on MTV they kind of canceled it Facebook watch picked it up it ran for like two more seasons and nobody knew uh, like they were like to this day, people are like, what? She had a show that she was like the lead and it was like, nobody has any idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how to access Facebook watch. anymore. Anyway. I don't even know where you would go to watch any of those shows. 
and that's it's just like the history all gets erased and then people are like oh yeah she was just on grand crew and nailed it and she's successful now and it just happened mm-hmm. she's a star <laughs> and it's like no it, we like we've been in the trenches mm-hmm. and so i mean so much of this is so devastating as both melissa and i hope to make our way into tv but um <laughs> like you know what are you excited about with TV? Like, what are some of the shows that you think are just so great and pushing the envelope or like makes you feel like TV is here to stay, even if like the versions of it kind of change? Yeah. Uh, shows like Reservation Dogs, Rami, Mo, The Bear, those are the shows that make me go, okay, there are still audiences that want experimental weird TV. You know, like The White Lotus, Reservation Dogs, The Bear, Killing It, Southside, those shows. They're mm-hmm. the other two. They're so different in tone. They're not like things we've seen on TV before. Better Things. That's the show. Mm-hmm. Better Things. It, they're just the shows that make me go, OK, there are networks, production companies out there that want to make things that aren't traditional, that are different, that might not resonate with audiences right away that might not be relatable to the mainstream, but they still want to tell these stories. And that's what gives me faith of that's that's at the end of the day, that's what people have to believe is that the person and and that's what always the test is, right? Like, could someone in middle America relate to this? Like, is John Q and his wife, are they going to like this? And I think it isn't so much that it's making networks realize that like John Q in the middle of America can relate to like Mm -hmm. a refugee from Palestine who lives in Houston and is just trying to like make his way and they can enjoy a show like Mo. You know, they can enjoy a show like Rami about like guilt and religious tradition. I I think that's what what the message is right now. We have to convince people like, no, you don't have to look like Don Draper to have like a a global relatable message. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, these stories aren't just for Black people if like, you know, Issa Rae is the lead. And Mm -hmm. I think Abbott Elementary, again, is a show that's proving that to people, you know, and everyone loves it. It's the big mass network hit. And people are like, oh, everybody can like Ava Coleman as a character. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I love that. And now I'd like to ask you to play a game show. Yes. I'm in. Yay. And then this game show, I think, should one day be a television show. Because I'm just putting that out there into the yeah. ether. Melissa is skeptical, but I believe in it. No, no, no. I'm 100% behind I mean, this. they make everything into, TV, into a game show now. And there's a yeah. huge push <laughs> for game shows because there's going to be a writer's strike. And you don't need writers for a game show. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I should get in on this. Yeah, so pitch your game show. Uh, like Steve <laughs> yeah. Harvey to host it or something. And yeah, literally <laughs> now they're having just, Steve Harvey. Host no, it. I, I agree. <laughs> like they have a new game show that's just like a person sits in a chair surrounded by celebrities and then they ask them like a trivia question and they can ask the celebrities for help. And it's just like, oh, okay, that that's a game show. Okay. <laughs> it's just like, do you want to ask Andy Richter for help? <laughs> Which celebrity would know this trivia the best is the game show. That's wild. Well, hypotheticals, I think you would need writers, as you will see, but maybe okay. non-union. Um, <laughs> in this game, you and Melissa are going to be my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and I um, decide if I like your answer or not. It's not super regimented. <laughs> Let's do it. So our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You find out that your partner of 12 years cheated on you with a married friend. And when you ask them why, 
they say it was an experiment in self-discovery. They wanted to see if they could keep it a secret or not, because you don't really know what you're capable of until you try to do it. They confessed to you after 14 hours. Would you stay with this cheater? So they failed at their experiment. Yeah. And they cheated on you. Yeah. Right. Because they were always so curious about all these people who would have these like years long affairs and secret lives. And they were like, could I do that? And then they found out that they couldn't. I mean, there are other lies you can keep that don't involve (laughs) sleeping with one of our married friends. I'll steal some money from my bank account and see if you can keep it a secret. I don't <laughs> buy me a diamond necklace. See if you can keep it a secret until Christmas. Like, And then I also feel like that hurts because like what you couldn't do that discovery with me, like you couldn't, you know, I don't like I'm your partner and you couldn't explore with me that. Yeah. So I uh, know we're le- I'm yeah. the, you're done. We're done. Divorce. <laughs> yeah. Divorce. Like what if we what if yeah. we made it a game? Like, hey. I have this experiment that, you know, keeping a secret, we'll find out if one of us cheats. We'll just see if it happens. But like, we're both in on it, you know? Yeah. And like, what if you'd been like, oh, turns out I can live with this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like if you'd been like, turns out I'm very good at keeping a big secret. (laughs) And then he just keeps having an affair. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was a risk. Yeah, Yeah. But like, I know that this is a possibility and I have the option too. you know? Yeah. Oh, okay. So sort of a, a open relationship that is actually it's secret is a yeah. secret open relationship uh-huh. that's uh-huh. also cheating, but also not. I mean, that, that, I that can sounds respect. healthy. Yeah, that, that sounds, sounds yeah. good. That's very exactly. like the couple on White Lotus. That's just like, you don't need to know everything about your partner mm-hmm. to love them. That is hot. So that I can get yeah, that I abide exactly. by. Exactly. I actually find that to be like one of the most interesting couples ever portrayed. On the I haven't show. I yes. haven't watched yet. So do I I know that up. I'm going to sit down and just binge the hell out of this show. But yeah, oh, it's unbelievable. I'm into it. It's so good. Okay, so fair. We'll we'll leave because they should have lied about something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Our second game. Are you a terrible parent? Your teenager, 14, says that they don't feel well on the same day as a big midterm test. You tell them to go take their temperature and then catch them trying to heat up the ear thermometer by putting it in their hot little hand instead of their ear because they are clearly faking. Seeing this, you still make them go to school, which causes them to fail their midterm and they have to take the class over in the summer, ruining your planned family vacation in Italy. Are you a terrible parent? Yeah, that's a terrible parent. Sorry, yeah. Then did they warm up their hand on another source? Because body temperature is body temperature. So them just putting their, the thermometer in their hand is not going to change their body temperature. You don't think that if you curl your little hands up, I they can become hot fact. little hands? Well, I think if no, you like you've rub gotta, it with friction. You have to do, yeah, you yeah. have to do something else first. You'd have so to like, like get did friction I, yeah. going. Yeah, they, were, but, they were up to stuff. They were rubbing. Yeah, so they were so they're rubbing to get it warm. I, I think this is bad parent because if like what is... Clearly, something's up with my kid mm-hmm. if they are so distraught, they're going to, they're doing science to create a fake, te- like thermometer reading. You know, there's clearly you need a mental health day. You need something. Something's yeah. going on. So as I would Agreed. be like, hey, let's chat. Well, you want to just stay home? You can just stay home. You don't got to yeah, do all I, this. I skipped so much school. Yeah. Um, I feel like that I should have talked to them more about what was going on 
terrible parent. Yeah. 100%. And we all get to still go to Italy. Yeah. We can't <laughs> go to Italy because of this. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, unless this kid tries to get out of school every day, if this is like yeah. an anomaly, mm-hmm. I would be like, if I caught my kid doing that, I'd be like, okay, you don't have to go to school. Let's figure out what's going yeah, let's on Let's see here. what's going on. But if this is like, oh, every other day, they're like, right. oh, I don't feel good. Then I'm like, okay, come on. <laughs> Yeah, I would do that yeah. in elementary school. I would always say I didn't feel well because I was so miserable there. And I my ear runs hot. And so I would go to the nurse and the nurse would say I have a temperature. And then they my mom would pick me up and then drive me back to school like an hour later because I was fine. See, I, yeah. yeah, I skipped a lot of school. But also I'm like, did I not, I didn't, I feel like a bad parent as well because I didn't show them enough 90s TV where they know to go put it on a lamp for a second. like. I oh, yeah. I, I never thought about that. I could just, uh, as a kid, I'd make myself throw up. So I would just, like, I'd go to the nurse and they'd be like, you're cool as a cucumber, kid. You don't have a fever. And I'd just be like, oh, yeah, then how come I'm doing this? Gotcha. <laughs> throw up in just, front like, of them? Yeah. I'd just, like, be like, I'm just going to make myself throw up. And So you can do it without sticking your fingers down your throat? I could you as a just... kid. Like, as a kid, I wow. could just be like, think about puking. And I could just be like, Ugh. I can understand that. I if I hear or just think about throwing up, then I will throw up. Yeah. But I, I was more of a like I was such a good kid, a.k.a. I never got caught doing anything bad. So they just believe me when I said this. Yeah. <laughs> OK, our final game. Would you forgive this liar? Your 20 person company is doing a walkathon for lupus. Two weeks before your coworker comes in with a big boot and announces they broke their ankle and are devastated that they can't do the walkathon. They say they have to wear the boot for six weeks, but after five weeks, they show up without it. And when you ask about it, their whole story falls apart and they admit they faked it because they hate to walk. Would you forgive <laughs> this liar? Yeah. I I mean... I- like, okay, you don't want to walk. You could have just not done it. Also, I right. feel like I wouldn't ask a lot of questions if they were like six weeks and then it was five. I'd be like, oh, you heal quick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't be suspicious at that change. How? Okay. So, with walkathons, it's usually like you're getting donations for money for the amount mm-hmm. that you walked. Where was the money coming from? People in the community oh, or was yeah, the job? Yeah, the community. Yeah, did they still raise money and donate it? Yeah. Or, yeah. They made this big show being so upset that they couldn't do the walkathon that they donated a bunch of their own money to you for your walkathon. Great. Oh, even okay. better. Even better. Right. I get to look good. I get the uh-huh. points. Great. <laughs> Perfect. We're good. Yeah. We're No questions asked. No, yeah. Forgiven. <laughs> I would forgive them, but I would be like very worried about the legs that they go through to not have a confrontation. Yeah, or to I not would just say I don't want to do this. Yeah, I would wonder like how did you how much did you pay for like the boot? Like how because that's not comfortable to wear all day. That yeah, right for five weeks they wore it at work. Uh, yeah, wore it at work all the time. That's like Dick Whitman level insanity of pretending mm-hmm. to be someone else. That's like you have different problems. Go see a therapist, <laughs> right? And I'm just like, I don't as somebody that has worked in corporate before. Like, 
I don't trust most people anyway. Like I shouldn't be their friend. So I'm I'm not I what I didn't trust them to begin with. Yeah. So like any trust if you're a coworker, yeah, you already aren't someone I'm gonna hang out with outside. You know, mm-hmm. it's I'm not asking you to ever watch my house or do anything personal. Right. So it's like that's my weird coworker who has mm-hmm. their stuff they gotta deal with. <laughs> yeah. I'm not too concerned with them. Yeah. <laughs> but Melissa, I'm your coworker. You don't trust no, me. No, I said in I said in corporate life. Oh, thank you. It's different in creative in creative fields because you're like friends with people that you're creatives with. But right. if I'm with at somebody where I'm and I work for myself, if I'm somewhere where I'm I'm clocking in, somebody else is writing my check. I don't trust anybody else that's there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'm like I don't you know you're here for a paycheck. I don't know your mm-hmm. real motives. I don't exactly. know you. Wow, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> thank you so <laughs> much for joining us. Where can people find you and all the things that you're doing? Yeah, you can follow me at the Ashley Ray on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also listen to my podcast, TV I Say with Ashley Ray, where I talk about all the TV things and I interview all your favorite TV writers, actors, comics, everything. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Stick around. We're going to talk about where we grew up. Woo peak suey. Just between us, it's time for topics. X, 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 baby, baby. That was exciting. <laughs> Glad to share. All these intros feel like the remix. It's the remix. Um, so I have to give credit where credit is due. I was in Florida at a cousin's wedding, uh, prepping for JBU, and I said to my mom, "What topics should we do?" And she thought about it and she came up with this one. And I think it's pretty good. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> Lovely woman. You finally met her at Thanksgiving. I did. I met her, your dad. Your dad's kind of hot. Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> now is that the time or place? Because the time or place does not exist. <laughs> it's really funny. Your mom's really funny, too. Yeah, they're definitely, I, I feel like there's more goofs in the Raskin home than yeah. in a lot of homes. I could I could tell that you came from those two people. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> but speaking of coming, where you come from, so she was like, you know, how much of where you grew up as a kid or like into adults, like, you know, young adulthood influences who you are, even when you've like moved away. Mm-hmm. which I think works for both of us because we, we both, neither of us live where we grew up, but, nope. and you, cause you grew, up, grew up all over. I grew up everywhere. So I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And then I've lived in Memphis, Tennessee, Jackson, Mississippi, then moved back to Tennessee to Germantown, which is outside of Memphis. Then Humble, Texas, which is outside of Houston, Olathe, Kansas, which is outside of Kansas city then to Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and then to Northwest Arkansas, where my family settled. So, and then to LA, of course. So when people ask you where you're from, you just say all over? I just say Arkansas. Arkansas. Because I was born there, and then that's where I was for, until moving to LA the majority of time, because I was there from eighth grade until one year after college. Oh, okay. Oh, so from eighth grade. Well, part of eighth grade. Eighth grade, I went to three different schools. What? 
Yeah. So we were in Pennsylvania. Then we moved to Northwest Arkansas and we lived in one part, but that's not where we were building a house. And so it wasn't in the same school district that we were building the house in. So I went to three different schools in eighth grade. Was that horrible? Well, as a person of me being a chameleon, I'm used to moving around a lot. That was a lot, a lot, but uh, I am used to moving around. So honestly, when I'm in one place for a long time, I get unsettled. I got to get up and go. So that might be an influence of the way you grew up. Exactly. Wow. And, you know, also seeing people as disposable. Do you like think of yourself as a Southerner? Yeah. Yeah. Because I was mostly in the South, except for Pennsylvania right. and then well, Kansas too, but Pennsylvania, Kansas, and then moving to LA. We still live in Southern LA, so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely like, from if, the South. If you hear somebody with a Southern accent, do you feel like a, a, like a tribal affinity with them? Yeah, I had um, a meeting with someone that I might be doing a podcast with last week and they had a Southern accent. And the way that we kind of bonded was that I told her that I was from Arkansas. And then like it opened up a conversation where they knew somebody that went to school where I went, where I went to school. And so it's always, always a a good connection. Even my best friend that I met in LA, we met actually at a like watch party for the University of Arkansas, um, a football watch party. And there's just like, like we were like instant friends and there's just like a shorthand that we had with each other, even though she didn't even go to the University of Arkansas. She went to another school in Arkansas, but she wanted, you know, to get that connection with people that are from the same place that that she was. But it was just, it was just easy with her. Like we just had a shorthand when it came to things, especially being like liberals from the South too. It just makes things easier. And we just became instant friends. Yeah, like as soon as someone's like from New York, it's like, oh, I'm from New York. Or like mm-hmm. you see someone with the same area code. It's like, oh, yeah. I got that area code. Uh-huh. It's like thrilling. <laughs> yeah. Then you start asking what part, start figuring out. And, and, and in this day and age, you probably do have somebody that you know in common. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Like how many people, I mean, there's so many like connections that I have with people that are just random. But like, then we find out we have some connection down the road. Mm-hmm. I feel like I use my New Yorker identity all the time when I like wear all black. I'm like, well, I'm a New Yorker. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, but you haven't lived there since you were 18. I've spent like my entire adult life living in on the West Coast. But I'm like, I can still wear all black because I'm a New Yorker at heart. (laughs) You are. I mean, and that's still like where you go back to. um, And your your parents are still there. So it's still still part of you. What do you think is the most New York thing about yourself? I walk really fast. You do. I told you to slow down. Even when you were limping, you're still walking faster than me. Yeah. Like I have a sense of like, go, go, go. Mm-hmm. That I think is not what the West Coast is all about. Yeah. So I expect like people to reply right away. I walk fast. I talk fast. I like, I think I'm, I'm living on New Yorker speed still a little bit. Mm-hmm. I get that. What about for you? Uh, I I really like Southern comfort food is like the biggest thing. And I've been kind because I can't really do gluten anymore um, or dairy. So I've been trying to crack the code on how to make Southern food 
but like without that stuff. So it's been working out well. I believe in like family and communal things. I like to be more laid back and just, you know, everything doesn't have to be a rush. Kind of the opposite of you. Yeah, I mean, also just like aesthetically, I feel like I can tell when somebody's from the East Coast or like certain things. And I don't have an accent, but my sister has a pretty strong accent, which I think is funny because her accent's stronger than my parents or me. But Mm. you're like, if you heard my sister talk, you'd be like, oh, she's from New York. That's kind of my sister, Melanie. She has a slight Southern drawl on certain words like ice, ice, she says ice and rice, sprite. (laughs) But nobody else has. My parents don't have a Southern accent. Nobody else has one. Even though my parents, like, were born and raised in the South. I know. I never understood why some people have Southern accents mm-hmm. and some people don't. Yeah. <laughs> but it is like, and I, I also feel like I do this thing where, like, when I'm in L.A., I'm a New Yorker. And then when I'm in New York, I'm from L.A. Yeah. Like, I get to switch between the two identities. Same. But I think if I went, if I moved anywhere else... Like if I like moved to Chicago for the rest of my life or whatever, I think I would identify as a New Yorker over, a, what is it, a Los Angeline? Angelino. An Angelino. Like I don't feel like living in LA is like a core part of my identity in the same yeah. way being a New Yorker is. I think also like for Chicago, for example, I think Chicago is more closer, like not just physically, but like the lifestyle wise, wise is more closer to LA than New York. So I think you'd be able to, you know, kind of fit in more when you lean in more to the New York side. Chicago's more like New York, you mean? Yeah. Did I say oh, the opposite? You said it the other way. <laughs> I meant New York. It's a, it's a little slower, cleaner New York. Yes, I know. It feels like just a smaller, cleaner New York. And I'm like, uh-huh. I could get behind this. Yeah. And I also think, you know, having family that's still back in New York shapes it. And also, I think that a lot of like, there's also something about being a Jewish New Yorker. Mm-hmm. which is like its own culture in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Like I watched this hilarious TikTok that was like breaking down the different types of Jewish New Yorkers between like <laughs> the, like city New Yorkers, like Westchester New Yorkers and Long Island New Yorkers. And as she was breaking it all down, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. I think that like, you know, where we, where we're from, even though I'm so different than my family in so many ways, like, you know, I just saw them. And like, just the way we look at the world, think about the world, like, I'm far more progressive. And like, I, they might call radical, Mm -hmm. stuff that is like, um, but I think that like some stuff that's just like, so formed in you from like your childhood. Agree. Yeah, yeah. My family, of course, is left leaning, but like, I'm more far to the left than they are. There are some things that they're okay with. And I'm just like, no, absolutely not. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what do we rate this episode? I'll rate this episode 50 out of 30. Don't trust all therapists. Mm, Very good. And I will rate this 27 out of 12. Watch White Lotus immediately. I shall. Thank you to Ashley Ray for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. 
And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash Team or on our channel, youtube.com slash show. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at SheIsNotMelissa, at Gabby Road, Emotional Support Lady Substack, Patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn, and also Allison's book, Overthinking About You. Go and leave a Goodreads or an Amazon review. Um, you can also go to Scribd and see my book, Stimulus Rack. But Allison's, give them reviews. Okay, bye! Forever! Dog! <laughs>